This is Case Closed, one hour of mystery from the golden age of radio every Wednesday at relicradio.com. Our first story this week comes from Richard Diamond, private detective. It's the Red Rose for March 2nd, 1951. After that, it's yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the Meek Memorial Matter. That story aired March 3rd, 1957. Cigarettes present Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. people smoke camels than any other cigarette. Make your own camel 30-day test, the one sensible, thorough cigarette test. You'll enjoy the rich, full flavor of camels' costly tobaccos. You'll see just how mild a cigarette can be day after day, pack after pack. And you'll know why more people smoke camels than any other cigarette. transcribed is Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Diamond Detective Agency, the ham and mayhem. It's mayhem. Not if it ruins a gag. Hi, Helen. Hi. What are you doing? Oh, trying to spot a client. I've done everything to get somebody up here. Set traps. Hung out of the window by my toes. Nothing. Oh, is it that bad, Rick? Has been for a week. Can I come over tonight and cry on your shoulder? I'd love it. Better wear a bathing suit. Are you going to cry that much? No, but the bathing suit will sure make me feel a lot better. You idiot. Yeah, I can't help it. I try so hard. Are you really coming over? If I cry long enough, I'll work up a heck of an appetite. I'll have Francis fix you a good dinner. I'll pay you back for the first client I get. We'll eat out. No, I'll have Francis fix you dinner. (laughs) What time will you be over? Mr. Diamond. Rick? Shh. I think I've spotted one. Client? I'm afraid to ask. It might scare him away. Are you Richard Diamond, the private detective? Are you interested in hiring him? I certainly am. Rick? You just made a score, baby. I'll see you tonight. Oh, wonderful. Bye. Well, uh, come in, sir. Come in. No sense in standing in a draft. Might catch pneumonia before we get around to my fee. Uh, my name is John Alistair. Well, sit down, Mr. Alistair. Pull up a wallet. A uh, uh, chair. Uh, thank you. Now, uh, what can I do for you? Uh, Quite a lot, I hope. Two days ago, I made arrangements for my own assassination. Huh? It's really very simple. Well, so am I sometimes. Maybe you better be a little bit more specific. Well, I was bankrupt, in danger of going to prison. Uh, I have a family, a wife and two children. And an insurance policy. That's right. Mm. If I was to be killed, my family would be well taken care of. You said you were in danger of going to prison. Why? Well, I'll be perfectly honest. I embezzled money from my firm. Oh, embezzlement. Well, you can get a lot of years for that. Yes. So I decided to do away with myself, leaving instructions for my wife to replace the stolen funds. She could live quite comfortably on the rest. I knew suicide would revoke the insurance policy, so I went to the only underworld character I knew, a, a man named Gimpy. A long time ago, he'd been my bootlegger. Oh, yeah, I know. I nearly poisoned me once. I told Gimpy I wanted to hire a man to kill me, a professional assassin. 
Gimpy said it could be done, and I gave him $200. I told Gimpy to take care of the arrangements and not to tell me anything about the man who was going to kill me. I didn't want to know a thing. How it would be done or when. What do you want me for? Well, something has happened. My wife's brother arrived last week from South America, a very wealthy man, and advanced me enough money to pay back the firm and make a fresh start. Well, then go tell Gimpy to call the gunman off. Have you read the morning papers, Mr. Diamond? No. Here, front page. Gimpy was shot to death last night. Oh. Well, it's kind of tough, then, to tell Gimpy to call it off, hmm? I want you to find whoever Gimpy hired and stop him from killing me. Find a man with the only clue to his identity lying dead in the morgue? He could be one of 50 professional killers wandering the streets. One of 50 who would make it tough to be found even if you just wanted the time of the day. Can you find him? I don't know. I can try. You must find him before he kills me. I'll try my best. In the meantime, you stay here and lock yourself in. In this office? Yep, right here. Don't even let your wife know where you are. All right, if if you think it's necessary. I think it is. And, uh... By the way, I, I charge a hundred a day in expenses. I guess his brother-in-law had given him enough money for a high-priced private detective because he handed me a hundred dollars and agreed to lock my door and not answer it for anyone but me. I left the office and headed for the Skid Row Bistro where Gimpy had died on the dirty floor. It was called the Black and Red, and the bartender was wearing an apron that looked like he'd been making hash on it. Yeah, Gimpy got killed here. Right over there, the clean spot near the bar. He bled a little. You know who gunned him? What am I answering your questions for? Because I'm asking him. That ain't enough. I got a fetish for living. Hmm. I'm a, I'm a private cop. Well, that's the worst thing you could have said. You better buy a beer or take a walk, huh? I'll buy. You don't even have to change the ten bucks. You think I'd tell you something for a lousy ten fish? Yeah. Well, you're wrong. I don't know nothing. You were in here, weren't you? Yeah, on my stomach behind the bar. You saw it start, didn't you? You want me to tell you as much as I know? Unless you want to play another tune. We could dance. Ten bucks for what I know? You don't think it's worth it, huh? Nah, but I seen the ten and it made me greedy. Okay, here, live a little. Thanks. Well, Kimpy was standing over there drinking a beer. These two guys come in and one of them walks up to him. What did they look like? Two guys, big guys, hats, coats with the collars stained up, the whole bit. Looked like just what they was. This one guy started arguing with Gimpy about some money. You hear the conversation? Yeah, something about wanting all the 200. Well, Gimpy gets a little nasty. He was like that, you know, a nasty little guy. Well, the guy gets tired of arguing and pulls a gun. Gimpy tries to climb the bar, and he must have been halfway over when a guy cut him in two. By then, I was flat on my face waiting for mine. But these two guys took off, and I called the cops. Wait the ten. You don't remember what either one of the guys looked like? Nah, I was mine to my help. Mm. Okay, thanks. Uh, hey. Yeah? Uh, I don't know whether it means nothing, but the guy who killed Gimpy was wearing a small red flower in his buttonhole. A red flower like a rosebud. I remember it. <laughs> Funny a guy like that should be wearing a pretty flower. <laughs> What do you want? Why, Sergeant Otis, you've been taking your ugly pills again. Can't you ever do anything without the department's help? I thought you were supposed to be a big, smart private detective. Well, we all make mistakes. I thought you were supposed to be a gorilla. 
Oh, you did, huh? Yeah, but gorillas get bigger. Oh. Hello, Up. Hello, Rick. What can I do for you? I got a little problem. Your department handled that killing over in the Black and Red Saloon? Skid Row? Yeah. Yeah, a small-time guy named Gimpy got himself blown up. Mm-hmm. Any line on the killer? No, we questioned the bartender who runs the place. He was lying on his face. Couldn't give much of a description. But checking up on Gimpy's friends and associates. The killer wore a small red flower in his buttonhole. Maybe a rose. How do you know? Bartender told me. Thought maybe you knew about it. Well, he didn't tell me. What are you interested in Gimpy for? Uh, he contacted the killer. I've got to find the killer, and I don't know who he is. You think maybe this guy with the flower is your boy? Well, he might be. Bartender said he was arguing with Gimpy about $200. Well, no, he didn't tell me that either. Just said they were arguing. You should have slipped him 10 bucks. What do you have to find him for? Client. You got a client who wants you to find a killer? Yeah, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Now, give me what you got on Gimpy and his friends. I don't know why I should. Oh, stop pouting, fatty. I can't tell you anymore. Besides, if I find this killer, you solve the gimpy killing, don't you? Well, yeah. Well, then let's have it. Okay. Gimpy didn't have many friends. The only sure one we've come up with is a woman named Belle DeCanto. Runs a small dancing school. Have you talked to her? Yeah, but she knows less than the bartender. Here's the address. Walt gave me Belle DeCanto's address, and I went over. It was an old two-story building on the east side with a rickety flight of stairs leading up to the dance studio. Belle DeCanto was sitting at the piano. I stood there smoking a camel, watched one of her young pupils perform a pretty sloppy set of turns. All right, Jeannie, that was fine. Over to the bar. Okay. Hey. Huh? Oh, somebody... Oh, what can I do for you? I want to talk to you, Belle. Twenty bucks for ten lessons. I just want to talk. Why don't you take the lessons, mister? Gives you grace and balance. I look a little silly in tights, dear. Go do your exercises, Jeannie. Okay, but I still think you'd look great in tights, mister. We could do Swan Lake and things. I bet we could. Talk him into it, Belle. He's real cute. What do you want to talk about? Gimpy. You a cop? Private cop. I entertained the whole 5th Precinct all morning. I'm looking for the guy who killed Gimpy. I told the cops all I know. I don't know who killed Gimpy. Back straight, honey. Okay. I can't help you, mister. You know a man who wears a red flower in his buttonhole? Huh? Do you know a man who wears a red... I'm busy, mister. I got a lesson. Look, Belle. I don't know nothing. Now beat it. Maybe if I bought a course of lessons. I'm full out. Now get out of here. I told you to keep your back straight. Okay, okay. I'm keeping it. Belle... You gonna get out of here or do I call the law? Oh, Belle, what you throwing him out for? You shut up and keep your back straight. Listen, I'm paying good money around here. Get out now, mister. Okay. What are you climbing on me for, huh? So what are you yelling? You'll get up there and do your better or bust this cane over your skull. You'll do what? I told your old lady I'd teach you how to dance and I will if I have to cripple you trying. You don't yell at me like that. Bye, you lovely people. Bye, honey. You don't yell at me. I paid my money. Who do you think you're? Who? Get up on that bar! Drop dead! It was pretty obvious my mention of the man with the red flower had set off Belle DeCanto's charming temper. And it was even more obvious that to Belle, the man with the red flower spelled some kind of trouble. The third and most obvious point was that I wouldn't get anything out of Belle even if I dropped her in a pit full of enraged mice. 
I started down the steps of the dance studio, heading for the street, and I stopped cold. Something on the third step set off little bells in the space in my head reserved for danger. There, on the third step, was a small red rose, and it hadn't been there when I went in. I stopped and thought about it. Maybe the man I wanted was in the building. I looked around. Only one other door besides the studio, and that led to Bell's apartment above. I went up there and looked around. Nothing. Then I got a pretty scary thought. Maybe the man with the red rose had tailed me, waited around listening at the door. If he'd found me, maybe he'd found my client. I spent the next 20 minutes making myself hard to follow, and when I was satisfied no one was tailing me, went back to my office. Alistair. Mr. Alistair. Who is it? Diamond. Open up. Uh, how do I know it's Diamond? Well, you are being cautious. You gave me a $100 retainer. I told you to lock yourself in my office and not to answer to anybody but me. Did you find out anything? Uh, close it and lock it. Is something wrong? The man who killed Gimpy was wearing a red flower in his buttonhole. I met an old biddy who runs a dancing school, and when I mentioned the flower, she froze up like a clam in a barrel of glue. Who is this man with the flower? I don't know, but before he killed Gimpy, he argued with him about some money. Two hundred dollars. Well, that's the amount I paid Gimpy to hire the assassin. Now, I think the man with the flower is probably your killer. When I left the dance studio, I found this. A red rose? Uh-huh. I think maybe he's tailing me. He knows I came to see you. I don't know. I think he's found out I'm looking for him. Maybe figures I'm trying to catch him for killing Gimpy. Anyway, you're not the only one on the spot now. But what'll we do? If he's looking for me, there's no sense in letting him find you, too. You gotta get out of here. But where? Well, an out-of-the-way hotel I know. Manager's a friend of mine. But what if this killer finds you? That's a good question. I hustled John Alistair out on the fire escape, and we climbed down to the floor below just in case our boy with the red rose was waiting outside my office. We climbed into the seventh-floor hall, made our way to the service elevator and down to the alley. A half an hour later, I'd deposited Alistair in room number 11 of the Bunker Hill Hotel in charge of the manager, a one-time safecracker named Herman Clip. I'd done a lot of favors for Herman, and he assured me Alistair would be safe and that no one would be allowed to see him unless his name was Diamond and he had the bluest eyes in the private detective business. It was six o'clock by the time I left the hotel, and I kept to the side streets in case the man with the red rose might be close. It was certainly one way of finding him, letting him find me. But I wanted to be ready for it, and I didn't want to be around my client when it happened. I went back to my apartment on 51st Street. Hello, chum. I've been waiting for you. Oh, that's nice. Lonesome? Eh, for a while. You had that nice big gun to keep you company. Sure, sure. Mm. You forgot to wear your rose. You got the wrong boy, Diamond. Drago's busy. Drago? Name won't do you any good. I'm going to kill you. Drago's the boy with the red rose? Turn on the radio. You were the guy with him in the bar when he killed Gimpy. Eh, that's right. Turn on the radio. Okay, okay. Look, uh, tell Drago he doesn't have to kill John Alistair. Alistair says to call it off. The radio, the radio. Oh, sure. Will you tell him? 
See, I tell him, but I don't think he's going to do any good. You see, he knows Alistair talked to you. We know you've been trying to find him. And we don't want anybody who can pin Gimpy's killing on us. I didn't tell Alistair anything. Sure, sure. Where you got him hidden out, huh? Eh? We find out. Drago shouldn't have knocked off Gimpy like that, but he gets excited. Like running out of the bar before he knocked off the bartender. If we had knocked off the bartender right then, he couldn't have told you nothing. What about the bartender? He's in the river. Turn the radio up. I turned the radio up slowly, my mind working triple time. The guy behind me wanted the music to cover the noise, like a funeral march with a one-gun salute. I heard him get up behind me. All right, turn around. It had to be quick. I turned and gave him the radio right in the face. (laughs) I had twisted his gun right into his stomach. He looked up at me like a kid who was going to bust out crying because somebody had dumped over his blocks. Then he slid down on his face and died without a sound. I put in a fast call to Walt, told him to check his files for a killer named Drago. I told him what had happened and about the bartender who was probably floating on the river. Then I took off for Bel DeCanto's dance studio. The man I'd just killed had said Drago wasn't going to leave anyone around who might pen the gimpy killing on him. And Drago had left his red rose on the steps outside of Bell's studio. When I got there, the big dance hall was dark. So I went up another flight to Bell's apartment. Well, here goes. Bell was there all right, and Drago had been there. He hadn't left a rose, but he left a bullet instead. It was somewhere in Bell DeCanto's heart. Before we continue with Richard Diamond, here is an important question. How mild can a cigarette be? One puff won't tell you. One sniff won't tell you. It takes day in, day out smoking to find out how well a cigarette agrees with your throat. Only camels offer you this day in, day out smoking proof. In a coast-to-coast test of hundreds of people who smoked only camels for 30 days, noted throat specialists reported not one single case of throat irritation. Due to smoking camels. Make your own camel 30-day test, the one sensible, thorough cigarette test. Smoke only camels for 30 days and let your taste tell you how rich and flavorful camels are, puff after puff, pack after pack. Let your throat tell you how mild camels are, how well camels get along with your throat as a steady smoke. You'll see why people say, once a camel smoker, always a camel smoker. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Make the camel 30-day test and you'll see. Smoke camels and see. And now back to Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Well, here's all the information, Rick. 
The only man we got on file named Drago is a well-known hood named Tommy Drago. Mm -hmm. Seven arrests, two convictions, assault, and armed robbery. Can you find him all? Well, I put out an APB. Maybe we'll pick him up. You find the bartender? They're dragging the river now. Mm -hmm. The guy in your apartment has been identified as Julio Bassadi. Arrested once with Drago. Supposed to work together. Yeah. Why did Drago kill Bell DeCanto? Well, probably thought I told her something. We gotta get this boy. He's killed three people in two days. And he wants to add two more to his list. Me and my client. Where is your client? Oh, he's staked out in the Bunker Hill Hotel. He's safe. Well, we better pick him up and give him protection. He doesn't want the police brought in. But you can stake out a couple of men near the hotel in case Drago shows up. Right. Look, uh, Walt, if this Drago likes red roses, he must buy them someplace. Yeah? Well, have some men check all the flower shops. Have them circulate the description. For the rest of the day and into the evening, the entire precinct turned out to look for Drago. Each man had a photograph, and they toured every flower store in the city, showing the photograph and asking questions. Walt and I even took one section... Wore out a lot of pavement and several good inches of shoe leather, trying to find someone who might have been selling the roses to Drago. By six o'clock, we were back in the precinct, discouraged, and as Walt said, Oh, I'm beat. Yeah. You want some coffee? Yeah, yeah, might as well. We took in 12 shops. Here. Thanks. Looks like the guy grows his own. Maybe he does. Swell, I'll put out a general to pick up every window box and flower pot in the city. We're bound to catch him in ten or twelve years. Yeah, what do you want, Spikehead? Spikehead? Just thought it up. Oh. Well, did you just want to see if the buzzer works? Uh, no, I got an address on that guy Diamond Shot. Julio Bassati? Yeah. Well, do you want us to hold a seance while you give it to us by telepathy? Oh. Uh, 456 River Street, apartment 7. And you sure are getting grouchy. Walt and I piled into the squad car and took off for 456 River Street. There was a chance that the man who wore the roses might live with his partner, Julio Bessardi. We found the manager, he led us into the apartment, and after 15 minutes of pretty extensive house wrecking, both Walt and I came to the same conclusion... Julio Bassardi lived alone and liked it. We hit the street pretty discouraged. Well, come on. Hey, uh, hey, Walt. What is it? Look, that old lady down the street. What about her? She's selling flowers. Oh, well, let's go. That flowers, 20 cents a bunch. Flowers, gentlemen. Uh, do you have some red roses? I guess. Single red roses that I could wear in my lapel? Yes, 25 cents. Have you ever seen this man? What man? Here. Yes, Mr. Drago. I sell him a red rose every evening, fresh. You know where we can find him? Well, what do you want him for? Police. Has Mr. Drago done something? He's wanted for murder. Oh, no, how terrible. He seemed like such a nice man, so generous, he dressed so nicely. He's killed three people. Three people? Do you know where he lives? Three people? Yes, he lives in the next block. I don't know the number. I'll have to show you. Here, I'll take all the flowers you've got. The old flower woman showed us the building, and again we dragged another manager out to let us into Drago's apartment. 
This time, we went in low, ready to shoot if Drago happened to be home. He wasn't. And once again, we tore another place apart. Find anything? On it, yet. Get a load of this closet. Drago really dresses. Hey, Walt. Yeah? You find something? Ah, look at this telephone pad. What about it? The writing. Read it. Bunker Hill. Bunker Hill Hotel. That's where my client is. Drago's found him. Walt, go check for the men you got staked out and see if they spotted Drago going in. I'll go in and see if my client's all right. Right. Herman. Herman. Oh. Rick. Over here, Walt. Herman is out cold. Herman? Yeah, the manager. Oh, he looks pretty bad. Yeah, he's really out. Drago? Your men see anybody? No, but he could have slipped in. Now, let's get up to my client. Well, come on. I'm looking for the key. What room? Eleven. Well, it's gone. I had my client locked in. Come on. Second floor. Here it is. Alistair. Alistair, it's Diamond. Diamond, Diamond, get me out of here. He's been here, he's got a key. Where is he? He tried to get in, but I have the chain lock on. Then he tried to break it down. I pushed the furniture in front of the door. Get me out, please. Just take it easy, we'll try and break it down. The furniture's still there. Well, get it out of the way. Yes, yes. I don't know where he went. Is there a fire escape? Fire escape? Yes, yes. There's an escape right outside my window. Good heavens, Diamond. Just keep moving the furniture. But... Escape. Just move the furniture. Well, yeah. You stay here. I'm going out on the fire escape. It figured. If Drago couldn't get past the furniture, he'd get in another way. I ran to the end of the hall and out on the escape. I turned the corner of the building and started for my client's room. He's on the escape. He's coming down. I can hear him. Get me out. Get me out. At first, I thought my client had heard just me, but then I saw him climbing down from the floor above, a gun in his hand, the polished barrel shining in the moonlight. As he reached the window, Alistair went crazy. He's outside the window! No! No, no, please! I leaned against the building and steadied my arm just as he broke the window. No, no! No, You killed him! You killed him, you killed him. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. What must done? Shot him right through his red rose. Dick Powell will return in just a minute. Across the nation, doctors in every branch of medicine have been asked this question. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Again. The brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Yes, and Camels are the favorite cigarette of many stars whose throats are their fortune. 
Reza Stevens, Mario Lanza, Martha Tilton are a few of the singing stars who choose camels for mildness. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Make the camel 30-day test and you'll see. Smoke camels and see. Here's Dick Powell with a special message. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we add a new name to the list of recipients of gift camels for hospitalized servicemen and veterans. It's the Military Air Transport Service, United States Air Force, which evacuates virtually all overseas wounded servicemen. Camels are also on the way to Veterans Hospitals, Lake City, Florida, and Nashville, Tennessee. U.S. Naval Hospital Ship Haven. Now, until next week, enjoy camels. I always do. Dick Powell can now be seen starring in the RKO film Cry Danger. Tonight's adventure of Richard Diamond was written by Blake Edwards with music by Frank Worth. Our director is Helen Mack. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Wilms Herbert, and Arthur Q. Bryan. PA stands for two things, Pipe Appeal and Prince Albert. They go hand in hand, for Prince Albert's choice tobacco has a rich flavor and a delightful natural aroma. PA is crimp cut for smooth, even burning and it's specially treated to ensure against tongue bite. Yet Prince Albert, the national joy smoke, America's largest selling smoking tobacco. Listen next week for another exciting transcribed adventure of Richard Diamond, starring Dick Powell. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the FBI. Follows immediately. Stay tuned. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the American Broadcasting Company. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Where have you been for the past 20 minutes? In the shower. For 20 minutes? Okay, so I'm a shiny dollar. So you... Oh. Who's that? Max. Max Green of the Short Equity. Oh, hi, Max. What's on your mind? Four score and seven years ago... Our father's brought forth, but that doesn't answer my question. Johnny, you ever hear of the Meeks? Uh, New England family stood away in the Mayflower, speak only to their money? That's... What about him? No, not about them. It's about Mariah Meek and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. She's lost her copy of it. Well, it shouldn't be hard to find her another one. That's where you're wrong, Johnny. Huh? It would be very hard. Might cost us $100,000. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Assured Equity and Trust Company, 325 Scott Avenue, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Meek Memorial matter. Expense account item one, $1.90, cab from my apartment to Max Green's office. He was standing in a haze of cigar smoke, ashes on his vest, and a worried look on his face. Oh, good morning, good morning, Johnny. Oh, you want a cigar? Oh, no, no, thanks. Let me sit up, sir. Excuse me. Listen, Johnny, 
What do you know about that speech that Lincoln made at Gettysburg? Well, I had to memorize it in school, like every other kid. All right. You know how many words are in it? Um, maybe a couple of hundred. Why? Wait a minute. It's in this book. Yeah. Page 143. Speech is printed here exactly as Mr. Lincoln released it to the newspapers after the Gettysburg Address. You find it? Yeah, but now what do you... Okay. Total number of words, 268. But the first two drafts of that speech, including the one he read that day, contained only 266 words. So he padded his part. That's right. Two more words. Mm -hmm. How come? Oh, according to the historians, Lincoln ad-libbed the two additional words at the time he read it. Later on, when he made three new copies of the speech, he included those two words. You with me so far? Keep going, Max. Yes. All right. Right down at the end of it, just before Of the People, By the People, where he said that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, hmm? the words under God do not appear in the first two drafts he wrote. Yeah. Well, this is all very interesting, Max, yeah. but I still don't see what it is or what it has to do with me. Well, Mariah Meek's copy has disappeared. Oh. And Johnny... That copy happens to contain just 266 words. You mean she owns one of the first two original drafts? Handwritten by Mr. Lincoln himself while he was on the train riding to Gettysburg. Wowie. Yeah. Which is, of course, why we insured it for the full amount it cost her, which is $100,000 even. Of course, you made sure it was authentic before you issued the Oh, policy. naturally. Well, who'd she buy it from? An antique dealer down in Richmond, Virginia, a fellow named... Uh, Jason Penrod. Uh-huh. Well, where's she been keeping it? Under glass, in the Meek Memorial. What's that? Well, she collects Americana, so she had a museum built to keep it in, and she calls it the Meek Memorial. Follows? Follows. Also follows the most expensive item in the collection, the Gettysburg Address, would be the one to disappear. Oh, you're just an old pessimist, Max. You think somebody lifted it? What do you think? It walked out by itself. Okay, okay. So what are you going to do about it? Well, we're going to run newspaper ads. We're going to offer a $10,000 reward for information leading to its return. If anyone answers it, you let me know where you'll be, and I'll refer them to you. Good. When was it taken? The night before last. Is there any kind of market for something that rare? Uh, hard to say, Johnny. A hot camera would be easier to peddle. Sure. But a good many wealthy people, like Mrs. Meek, they make a hobby of collecting things, you know, antiques, objects of art, etchings. But whoever took this or buys it from the thief... Couldn't just let everybody see it. Well, it wouldn't matter to some people. They take it and put it in a vault and keep it there. Then what's the point in having it around? Pride of possession. You've got something no other collector could own. Mm. And, of course, it might not have really disappeared at all. You're thinking of fraud? A hundred grand is a lot of cash. <laughs> Expense account item two, one dollar and ninety cents. Cab fare back to my apartment. I wasn't particularly intrigued by this assignment. Rare documents, like anything else antique, have always seemed to be just one step from decay. And that sometimes goes for the people who collect such things. Item three, $16.10, transportation, including a round-trip ticket, Hartford to New Bedford, and cab fare to the waiter's hotel. There was a convention in town, so I was lucky to get a room. After checking in, I called the Meek residence. Mrs. Meek was expecting me and said she'd have her car pick me up. I had just put down the phone when someone knocked on the door. You in there? Depends on what you're looking for. I'm looking for Mr. Mr. Jay. Jay, did you say? Nobody by that name here. Oh, yeah. I, I see. I, I guess I got the wrong room. Yeah, well, uh, why don't you ask down at the desk? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Or is it? I cracked the door open again. Watched him walk to the stairs. Then I took the elevator down the eight flights to the lobby. Half an hour later, I was in the backseat of the Meek limousine heading toward the home out on Buzzard's Bay. It was a big, sprawling frame building facing on the beach. About 50 yards behind it, closer to the road, was the Meek Memorial Museum. I was starting up the front steps when the door opened. Mr. Dollar? Ah, that's right. I'm Paul Meek. I understand you have an appointment with my grandmother. Right again. Now come in, please. She's waiting for you upstairs in the sitting room. Okay, thanks. Uh, before you go up, I wonder if I could have a few words with you. Why not? Stay in here, then. You've never met my grandmother, have you? No, no, I haven't had that pleasure. Some people consider it a dubious one, Mr. Dollar. Oh. Uh, Mr. Dollar, this is my wife, Janice. This is me. Hi. How about a drink? Uh, thanks, not just now. How about you, old stick in the mud? You want another one? After a bit, Janice. And if I were you, I wouldn't have any more. But you're not me, are you? You will have to excuse my wife, Mr. Dollar. See, well, we've both been under a severe strain since moving here. Grandmother is blind, you know. No, I didn't know. The sight began failing about four years ago. I'm surprised the insurance agent didn't tell you. Well, Mr. Green was so concerned over the theft of the Lincoln manuscript, I, I imagine it slipped his mind. Mm-hmm. And just how do you intend to locate that manuscript? I'm not so sure that I can. It would be a pity if you could. Be just awful. It's grandmother's prized possession. She hasn't been herself since it was stolen. And being quite elderly, well, we're all very much concerned. Oh, my, yes. We're afraid she might die and leave us all that lovely money. Janice. It's the truth. You see, Paul and I don't have any money of our own, Mr. Dollar. We'll never have any until she does. I, instead of giving it to us now while we're young, you know what she does with it? Spends it buying junk for that silly old museum. Now, look. That's gratitude, isn't it? I bathe her feet her rubber feet and do all her dirty work. Janice, you've said quite enough. Mr. Dollar isn't interested in our personal problems. Oh, stick in the mud. All right. I'll be in the den if you want me. And that's the funniest thing I've said all day. If you want me. I'm sorry. She doesn't mean half of what she says. Oh, that's Grandmother's signal. Then hadn't we better go up? Yes. Yes, we better. We went up the broad staircase, through a hall, and into a bright, sunny room. Wrapped in an old kimono and shawl, Martha Meek sat in an invalid chair, facing the ocean. Paul introduced us, then sat down quietly near the door. Paul? Paul, I know you're there. Now answer me. Yes, Reynolds. You go on downstairs. I want to talk with Mr. Dollar in private. Whatever you say. And close that door. Don't mind my back, Mr. Dollar. I couldn't see you if I looked into your face. Now then, when are you going to arrest that crook and bring my Lincoln speech back to me? Well, I, I'm i going to need a lot of help and information, Mrs. Meek. Mm-hmm. What kind of information? Mostly about the museum. Like what? Well, do you know who was in there the night the manuscript disappeared? Certainly. That dirty robber was. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, old Pete's always there. Supposed to be guarding the place, but he didn't do a very good job the other night. Got himself slugged. Does he live on the grounds? Yes. I brought him over from Naples ten years ago. He was my guide in Italy. Showed me around so nice, I decided to bring him back. Tell me, is the memorial open to the public? It was going to be. I intended it to be once. 
between my eyes. No, Mr. Dollar, I keep it locked most of the time. Uh-huh. And who discovered the manuscript was missing? Pete did, I guess. At least when he recovered, he ran yelling bloody murder up here to the house. Everybody went down to see what had happened. Everybody but me. They left me all to myself. Were there any strangers here in the house that night, Mrs. Meek? Anyone beside the servants and your grandson and his wife? One person, but he's no stranger. Who's that? Jason Penrod from Richmond. He's an art dealer. We were discussing some business. May I, uh... Ask what kind of business? Uh, it has nothing to do with you or the people you work for. Sorry. Where can I find Mr. Penrod? Uh, he's staying here now. If he isn't in his room, then he's most likely out in the memorial. Now, that's enough questions. You, give me a cigarette. Ma'am? What's the matter? You're deaf? Give me a cigarette before Paul or that snoopy wife of his comes prowling around. <laughs> All right, sure. Light me. Well, you want any more information, Pete's the one to talk to. All right, thanks. But what about your son and daughter-in-law? Were they inside the house at the time of the robbery? You don't suspect them, do you? Right now, I suspect everybody, Mrs. Meek. Even me? Yes, ma'am. Even you. Well, bless you, boy. I found Pete Vesuvio trimming the shrubbery just outside the memorial building. He seemed quite willing to talk to me. Uh, how you say what happened to me, mister? I'm uh, hit out? <laughs> Knocked out, Pete. Ah, see, si, senor. And because of this, I do not see anything. Nothing at all, huh? Please, mister, do not use the insult. I am American citizen, first papers. Because of the kindness of my patron, I will soon be second papers. I know by heart the Constitution, United States, Gettysburg address, pledge allegiance to my flag. Yeah. You know how I know that these things which help me be citizen? Because of my lady, she's letting me work in a place where great papers are for me to read. Because of her, I would not hide anything, mister. Okay, Pete, okay, I'm convinced. But I'm sorry I cannot help you, mister. Well, it's not your fault. Hey, you like to hear me say Gettysburg address. Well, Do it very good. Learn it right from President's own writing. Some other time, Pete. Right now, I have to find Mr. Penrod. Oh, uh, he's inside, mister. Counting the treasures. All of the beautiful things a lady can no longer see. You'll find him in a Section L, senor. I found the small, neat-appearing art dealer just where Pete had said he'd be. Peering into a glass case crowded with Derringer pistols. He had a notebook under his arm and seemed to be making some sort of inventory. Oh, oh dear. You gave me quite a fright, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I uh, wish I could concentrate like that. Well, there's nothing more interesting to me than these fine old pistol things. <laughs> what history they must have, Mr. Uh... Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Oh, yes. The insurance investigator, Paul, told me you were wondering about the place. I suppose you'd like to ask me some questions, hmm? If you don't mind. Oh, no, goodness, no. I understand you were with Mrs. Meek the night of the robbery. That is correct, sir. We heard the shouting. We ran out here just as fast as we could. I was the one who discovered the manuscript was missing. You have any idea how the thief got in here? No, sir, no, no. Unless someone forgot to lock the front door, or unless he had a key. Well, has Mrs. Meek given out many of the keys? Well, in my opinion, too many. <laughs> Even I have one. What about Paul Meek and his wife? 
No, I don't think so. They, they really aren't interested in the museum at all, Mr. Dollar. Oh. Mr. Penrod, I understand you're quite an authority on antique art and things like that. Well, I... Isn't taking inventory a little beneath your position? Well, I suppose it is, Mr. Dolliver. Uh, last week when I received dear Mariah's wire asking me to do it, I, I simply couldn't refuse. She's been such a good customer of mine. Really. Yes. You have any idea who might have wanted the Lincoln Manuscript? Well, I know several persons who'd love to have it. He'd give most anything, but I don't know anyone with the nerve to break in here and take it by force. You remember where Paul Meek and his wife were when you heard Pete shouting? They were right in here when I arrived. I see. Well, thanks for... Oh, just one more thing. Oh, yes? If you'd stolen the manuscript... Mr. Darlow... A hypothetical question, Mr. Penrod. But if you had, and you wanted to sell it at a good price with the least danger of being caught, how would you go about it? Well, I, I, I take it abroad, of course. I put it on the open market over there. Huh. You aren't planning on going abroad soon, are you, Mr. Penrod? Oh, gracious, no. <laughs> you know anyone who is? Anyone who, uh... Or didn't Paul and Janice tell you? They're flying to Paris Wednesday night. I left the memorial and walked back to the house. The Meeks were in the study, engaged in their favorite pastime. When I told them what the art dealer had said, Paul set down his glass long enough to confirm the fact that they did have reservations and insisted that he had a logical explanation for not having told me of those plans earlier. Very logical explanation, Mr. Dollar. Let me handle this, Janice, please. Sure. Drink, Johnny? No, first I want to hear that explanation, if you don't mind, Paul. Of course I don't mind. Janice and me, we're fed up. Why didn't you tell me about the plane reservations? Well, why should I have? I'm not even sure I'm going to use them. Oh? Grandmother's upset enough over losing that manuscript. Something else might... Well, anyhow, if the manuscript doesn't turn up within 48 hours, we're canceling our trip. Oh, no, please. Sorry, Janice, but that's the way it's got to be. She did it. What do you mean? It's an act, don't you see? Jason Penrod told her we were going to leave, so she had him hide the manuscript. And now this thing about her being so upset and having such a weak heart. It's an act to keep her precious darling boy tied to her apron string. I don't believe that. Well, just wait. You will. Anything else, Dollar? What does a trip to Paris cost, Paul? Well, it's not inexpensive. Your wife was complaining about being so broke. Haven't you ever heard of flying now and paying later? We have friends in Paris, Dollar. It won't cost as much to live once we get there. We'll worry about paying for our ticket when we get back. Any other questions, Mr. Snooper? Yeah. Later. It was after seven when I finally got back to my hotel room. I ordered a drink and tried to make some kind of sense out of the information I'd gathered during the day. But it all added up to zero. I called Hartford and asked Max Green to look into the Meek finances. Then I dressed for dinner. I was about to go downstairs when the phone rang. Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, I was told to call you. Yeah? It's about the ad. The ad? In tonight's paper about something missing from a certain memorial. Go on. Well, I called Hartford. Collect. They said to call you. Yeah, that's right. Who is this? My name's not important, Dollar, but that ten grand reward is. You think you can earn it? You meet me tonight, you'll see. Where? In the alley behind the Bourne Whaling Museum. Be there at 9.30 and be alone. You got it? Yeah, I got it. 
Expense account item four, 85 cents cab fare from my hotel to the Bourne Whaling Museum. I don't like wandering around dark alleys at night, alone in a strange town. It isn't the best way to stay alive. But at 9.29, I passed the old whaling museum and started down the alley. It was dark, no moon, and it was very quiet. I was about 20 yards in from the street when I saw him, curled up in a ball like he had a stomachache. Only he didn't. Because somebody had made him very dead. I struck a match and turned him over. I'd only seen him once before, but I didn't have any trouble remembering where it had been. Right after I'd checked in, he'd knocked on my hotel room door. By mistake. At least that's what he'd said. After giving a statement to the local police who identified him, I went back to my hotel. Evening, Mr. Dollar. Yeah, say, uh, look, I know it's probably against all your rules, but uh, who had my room just before I checked in? Oh, I couldn't disclose that information, sir. Sorry. Oh, well, so am I. It'd mean a lot for me to know. Maybe even five bucks worth. Well, I... uh... Well, sir, if it's that important... (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, let's see. uh... Um... Yeah, yes, here it is. Uh, can you read his signature, Mr. Dollar? Yeah, thanks. Just fine. The name I'd seen scrawled on the hotel register wasn't important now. At least not without something more to back it up. There was no law against checking out of a hotel. But there was a law against murder, if it could be proven. And that would be hard to do without finding a motive. So I went back to the Meek house to look for it. I paid off the taxi, that's item five, and started up the front steps. Hi, darling. I thought it might be you. That's so? Mm-hmm. I hope you aren't mad at me for the things I said today. No, no, not at all. I've been a very bad girl. But everything's going to be all right now. It is. Mm-hmm. Or haven't you heard? Heard what? About dear old grandmother. She's had a real bad stroke. Isn't expected to live. You, uh, aren't a bit sorry, are you? Would you be, if you were me? Dollar, you mind coming up here? No, not a bit, Paul. Trying to reach you at your hotel. Thank goodness you've come here. Did Janice tell you? Yeah. How is she? Bad. Doctor's given up. Says it's only a matter of hours. Uh, she told me to send for you, Mr. Dollar. Oh? I don't know why. I've never been able to figure out a lot of things she did. All right, where is she? In there. Oh, Pete's with her, but go on in. Thanks. increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave her the last... Who is it? Oh, it's uh, Mr. Dollar, my lady. Hello, Mrs. Meek. Oh, thank you for coming, Mr. Dollar. I uh, go now. No, wait. Mr. Dollar, you have a moment, haven't you? Of course. I promised Pete the last time I visited the museum. I promised I'd let him recite some of the things he's learned while working there. Haven't been able to keep that promise till now. Go on, Pete. Please. Yes, my lady. They here gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Thank you. That was wonderful. 
Thank you, my lady. Now I, I go. Hello, Mr. Dollar. I have a confession to make to you. Yes? I lied to you. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't a very big lie, Mrs. Meek. Oh, but it was. I told you the business Mr. Penrod and I were discussing the night of the burglary. Yes. I told you it had nothing to do with you or the people you work for, remember? Yes, ma'am. Well, it was a lie. I'm broke, Mr. Dollar. All I have left in the world is this house and the things in the memorial. I see. That's why I sent for Jason Penrod. He purchased most of my treasures for me. He's evaluating them now. So Paul and Janice will know what they're worth when they go to sell them, which they'll do immediately. Mrs. Meek, don't you think you should try to rest now? Will you give me a cigarette? No, ma'am. Sorry. And you must rest. There isn't much else to do, is there? Good night, Mr. Donald. Outside in the hall, Paul and Janice Meek were talking quietly to Jason Penrod. Off in the corner, standing with his back to the others, was Pete Vesuvio. Mr. Dollar, is she? She's resting quietly. Oh, dear God. Why did you lie to me, Pete? What? I never lied to nobody. Who say I did? I say you did. You're crazy, mister. What lie I tell you? You said you learned the Gettysburg Address right from Mr. Lincoln's own writing in the museum. That's a no lie. What's the matter you don't believe that, mister? I believe you, Pete. But I just had to be sure. Come on, let's join the others, shall we? Well, good evening, Mr. Dollar. Mr. Penrod. Tell you any of the family secrets, Johnny? Not too many. You learn anything in there you didn't know before? Yeah. I know which one of you stole the Lincoln manuscript. One of us? Why, you're crazy, Dollar. We were all in the house at the time it happened. That's right. But one of you hired a little man named Leo Jones to do your dirty work. Jones called me earlier this evening. He was going to tell me which one of you it was. Evidently, he didn't like the deal he was getting. What was he doing, Penrod? Trying to blackmail you? What are you talking about? I don't know any Leo Jones. Then why did he come around to my hotel room this morning? The same room you just checked out of. Well, that doesn't mean a thing. I imagine several persons have been to that room today. Sure, but they're still alive. Now, let's get to the phony Lincoln manuscript. Phony manuscript? It wasn't phony, Mr. Dollar. Wasn't it? Well, you correct me if I'm wrong, Penrod. After Mrs. Meek purchased one of the first two drafts of Mr. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, she started losing her sight. When she closed the museum to the public, you saw a chance to make yourself another $100,000 sale. So you switched copies of the manuscript, replacing that draft with one containing the words, Under God, which isn't worth anything close to a hundred grand. What do you mean, Dollar? All right, let me quote. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and so on. What? The phrase, under God, was not in the manuscript he sold your grandmother, but it was in the copy old Pete has been studying in the museum. Right, Mr. Penrod? All of you, stay right where you are. You get what Jones got. Mr. Toller. He won't go far, Pete. But I am the guard. The lady will want me to stop him. Pete, come back here. Keep away from me. Pete! Come on. Oh. You, uh, you tell the lady, I am a better guard now. Much better. See, senor. Yes, Peter. I did good. You did fine. 
Pete Vesuvio will live to apply for a second paper. <laughs> and in time, probably open a spaghetti joint in New Bedford. Penrod will be tried for murder. As yet, he hasn't disclosed the name of the person who purchased the stolen manuscript. But on time, I'm sure he will. As for the Meeks, well, Mariah passed on later that night. But as she said, there was nothing left for her but to rest. Expense account total, including hotel and numerous incidentals, $98.30. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. That's going to do it for Case Closed this week. Hope you enjoyed today's show. You can find more from Richard Diamond, Johnny Dollar, Case Closed, and all of the other Relic Radio podcasts at relicradio.com. You'll also find our Shoutcast stream there, a little internet radio station with more old-time radio, all available for free thanks to your support. If you'd like to help out, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Thanks to those who have. Thanks for joining me this week. Be back again next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed.